a reading from the letter of James. Who is wise and under who is wise and understanding among you? Show by your good life that your works are done with gentleness born of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not be boastful and false to the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, devilish. For where there is envy and selfish ambition, there will also be disorder and wickedness of every kind. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without a trace of partiality or hypocrisy. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace for those who make peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Mark. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came forward to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What is it you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They replied, We are able. Then Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those who, for whom it has been prepared. When the ten heard this, they began to be angry with James and John. So Jesus called them and said to them, You know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as their rulers lord it over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. This is the gospel of the Lord. Let's pray. Our God, we give you thanks for your word and for your spirit. And we ask now that as we sit with your scriptures that you would be with us bless us, and would you change us more and more into the likeness of Christ as you liberate us to live in the freedom of your love. We ask through Christ our Lord. Amen. If we're Facebook friends, I probably hate you. Not all the time, but intermittently and with the burning hatred that only envy can inspire. That's how Alexandra Samuel begins her recent article for the Digital Voice titled, What to Do When Social Media Inspires Envy. And that's what we're talking about today as we continue our series on the seven deadly sins. Envy, that love-hate relationship that we have with other people and their lives. So why are we talking about this? The seven deadly sins, they're not... Not like great conversation topics for parties, right? I mean, it's kind of a, a bummer, a downer, especially envy. Um, 
But there's an important reason, or a couple important reasons, that we're talking about the seven deadly sins this Lenten season. One, as we've been saying over the past several weeks, it is as we come to know ourselves more particularly as sinners that we also come to know and experience the grace and love of God toward us in Christ more personally, more powerfully, and more particularly. Secondly, we need to recognize that sin is sneaky, that it hides, that we're often not very good at seeing it in our lives. It's just there, um, like a disease at work in our lives, and it often runs around rampant and undiagnosed, and so we actually need help seeing sin for what it is so that we may live more and more fully into the life of freedom and love to which God calls us in Christ, the gift God has given us in Christ and his spirit. And so over the past several weeks, we've been looking at these uh, deadly sins and how they operate in our lives, how God's mercy meets us in the midst of them. And we've looked at sloth and wrath and greed and lust and gluttony. And today we're considering this deadly sin of envy, something that we all know personally as ugly and undesirable. No one finds envy attractive, right? No one finds envy attractive. No one finds envy enjoyable. Joseph Epstein says, it's our um, reflection quote in the front of your bulletin, of all the deadly sins, only envy is no fun at all, right? You can imagine the other sins. They give rise to momentary pleasures, even as they even as they eat away at our lives, but not envy, not envy. In many ways, envy is its own punishment. It's a form of sadness that belongs to those who live as have-nots in the world, regardless of how much they have. Yet at the same time, no one is immune to envy, right? No one's immune to it. As unfun, as unattractive, as undesirable as it is, we still go there. Why? Well, that's what we want to explore today. And what I think we'll find is that our envy is rooted in our attempt to find our self-worth in the wrong place. When we think of our own self-worth as something that we achieve rather than something we receive as a gift, then we end up living as though life were one big comparison game. And when you find that you evaluate your self-worth in comparison to other people, you kind of end up in one of two places. One is pride, when you see yourself as superior by comparison. But the other is envy, when you come up inferior in your own comparison game. Because envy at its core is about feeling like you are not enough. That your life is not enough. At its core, it's about self-loathing, which will always find ways to leak out into our relationships as contempt for others to whom we compare ourselves. But what I hope we'll see together this morning is that God's love toward us in Christ blows up, just blows up the stupid comparison games that we play in our minds. Because God's love, even when we experience it just a little bit, it begins to melt away our self-loathing. It begins to melt away our neighbor hating. Why? Because how can we hate the one God loves? And the truth that we find in Christ is that you are God's beloved. And so is your neighbor. 
In our New Testament passage, James says that harboring bitter envy and selfish ambition in our hearts is evidence that we are not living by what he calls this wisdom from above. This wisdom that God reveals to us in Christ. But rather that we're living by another kind of wisdom, some sort of counterfeit worldly wisdom that drives our lives in harmful directions. And James says where there is selfish Where there's envy and selfish ambition, we will also find disorder and wickedness of every kind. So that's what we're exploring today, is this life of envy that James tells us is really the opposite of the kind of of life that God calls us to. And of course, we have to acknowledge, even as we begin to consider this conversation, we have to acknowledge that the challenge for us is that we live in a culture that cultivates envy, right? Not just accidentally, like the way it often happens through our social media feeds, where we find ourselves comparing our our real complicated lives, all the things that we feel internally and all that, to the polished, simplistic, outward projection of other people's lives, whatever they choose to put out there, right? Without realizing that that's this kind of like apples to oranges comparison. There's a lot that's been written on that whole problem of comparing your inside to other people's outsides. But our culture not only does that unintentionally or accidentally, but it does it intentionally. Our culture cultivates envy intentionally because it is incredibly profitable to do so. The entire advertising industry is built on your envy and my envy and the things that we will buy in order to fill those holes in our lives that are there because we don't feel that we are enough. In a book called The Traveler's Guide to Hell, Uh, which is a funny title. Um, Envy is identified as the key behind every advertisement. So we're swimming upstream here, right? That's like, that's something that we need to know right offhand. Um, And just knowing that might be helpful as we begin to take stock of envy in our lives, to begin to realize that we are living in a world that both despises and cultivates envy at the same time which makes it difficult to see sometimes. So what is envy and how does it work? Well, those, the ancients who have written about envy have often identified it simply as like a form of sadness, actually. A form of sadness. Or a form of sickness. That's where the phrase green with envy comes from. Like a being sick sort of green. It's this sin of the comparison game way of life, Right? It's the sin of the have-nots who view life as comparison. It's this, it's this thing that turns our friends and neighbors into competitors, and then our competitors into enemies. And many who've written on envy, uh, they, they say that it works best at close range. Think of who you envy. Think of the ones that you find most envious in your life. It's probably not like Jeff Bezos. That's ridiculous. It's unattainable, Right? It's the, the people you envy in your life are the people who are just like you but doing it a little better, right? It works best at close range. It works best among people where you can imagine yourself as them, where you can see yourself in their shoes. So it's often people who do what you do or it's people who live where you live. I remember reading one thing that said, you know, envy is really just about wanting to make $10 a month more than your brother-in-law. It's not like some huge thing, right? It's just about being a little bit better with the people that we find ourselves uh, at close range or in close proximity to. 
And ultimately, it's important to see that envy is not really at its core about the things that we lack. We think it is. That's why the advertising industry thrives on our envy. But ultimately, envy is not about the thing, right? If I envy you for your car, it's not about the car. It's about how I relate to you. It's about relating to one another as rivals rather than as neighbors, rather than as sisters and brothers. And this is a story that goes back as far as humanity goes. Just in the opening pages of Scripture, we come across the story of Cain and Abel, right? These brothers. And what happens? They both bring an offering before God, and Cain is envious of his brother because God prefers the offering of Abel to the offering of Cain. And out of envy is born violence. And of course, it's a story that travels through. As we, as we read through the story of Scripture, envy comes up time and time again. And we even find it here in our gospel reading among those closest to Jesus who are following him, who see the miracles that he does, who are being enlisted in his inner core of disciples. We see envy at work there as we've got guys angling for the spots to Jesus' right or to his left. And you've got the other ten angry about their posturing. Envy. It's an old story, it's a contemporary story, and it's our story. One of the most, um, I think, harrowing depictions of envy comes from a poem by Victor Hugo, where Victor Hugo depicts greed and envy as twin sisters. And so the story goes, you've got greed and envy, these twin sisters who are doing what they do, and they, they actually come upon this one who grants wishes, and the one says, hey, I will grant, the f- whoever makes a wish first, I will grant that wish to you, whatever you wish for. But just know this, your sister will receive it in double portion. And so greed, not wanting to get the, the smaller bit, made sure to stay silent. And envy did too for a while until she got an idea and a grin came across her face and she said, I wish to be blinded in one eye. Right? The only way that she could forever be one-up on her sister. That is envy. At its darkest, at its core, that is what this rot of the soul is like. And so envy, it's this thing that lives in us as we view one another as rivals, as we view one another as our competitors, where there's this zero-sum game of life that we're enlisted in, and what, me, what the good life means for me is to just be a little bit better at it than you. And that is the deadly sin of envy. And here's one of the things that makes envy so toxic in our lives. It inevitably turns us away from God. Because envy is always, first and foremost, a problem we have with God. Right? Think about it. Envy is primarily a problem we have with God because it says God owes me something that he's been holding back on. Or God owes me something that I wanted him to give to me, but instead he gave it to you. And now I have a problem with him. Or if you don't believe in God, it's you know, the fates or the universe or the skies or whatever. Somewhere down the line, if things had just gone a little bit differently for me, I'd be where you are. But they didn't. And I'm envious of you. That's how it works. But the problem is when we view God that way, as one who owes us something but is withholding, what do we do? We begin to pull away 
from a God like that. We begin to say, I, I can't believe in a God who would X, Y, or Z. Or I, I just can't believe that God loves me if X, Y, or Z. Because we, we view God as primarily this one with whom we're in a transactional relationship and he's been withholding. And so God becomes the problem. But in fact, the truth is God is not the problem. God is the only one and only hope and solution for our envy. We'll see more about that in a minute. But before we do that, let's just look. Where does envy, what does envy look like when it shows up in our lives? Because I think if you're like me, which some of you are and some of you are less so, but I have a hard time spotting envy sometimes in my life, partly because I have a hard time dealing with any of the things that are on the sadder side of the emotional spectrum. I just have less access to that stuff. I'm an optimist. I'm limited in my capabilities. So for me, it takes work to actually go and pay attention to these things that are truly there, but I'm often ignorant of. And so it can be helpful to kind of go through the, hey, where there's smoke, there's fire kind of thing. It's like, what are some of the smokes that might alert us to the fire of envy in our lives? I hear just a couple of, a couple of ideas that might help us spot it if you need help. One, if you have a nemesis and you're not a superhero, <laughs> you probably have an envy issue in your life. And by nemesis, I don't mean someone who's done you wrong that you're struggling to forgive. I mean a rival with whom you see yourself in an ongoing competition, even if that competition is happening entirely inside your own head, right? Do you have a nemesis, someone that you'd love to see fail? You might have an envy problem, right? And that person is most likely someone near, not someone far, a colleague, a neighbor, someone who does what you do just a little bit better. Another thing, do you find yourself, do you ever find yourself unwilling or unable to enjoy somebody else's celebratory moment because you wish it were happening to you instead? That's one of the ways envy rears its head in a pretty harmful way in our lives. And some of you have been on the giving end of that. Some of you have been on the receiving end of that. Some of you have been on both ends of that. Maybe we've all been on both ends of that. But that's one of those places that envy flashes in our lives and does damage. What about this one? Do you ever find yourself resenting other people who get to enjoy good things? Like when you see their vacation photos on Facebook or even just the photo from the meal, and you're like, I haven't gone out in a, a month. But yet, how, how do you somehow post beautiful gourmet photos like three times a week on your Instagram feed? How's that even possible? Or like, yeah, do you, or do you ever find yourself vilifying people in your head, right? Like, the only way they could possibly be enjoying that much good stuff is if they're doing something illicit and devious. You must still somehow be better than them, right? Because they've got to be doing something underhanded to be enjoying all these good things. I think another subtle way that envy pops up in our lives is this FOMO, fear of missing out, right? Which has become, there's a lot that's going on that's being written about FOMO these days as uh, the, the world of social media is just creating different kinds of uh, contexts in which the dynamic of envy plays out, but we begin to see things differently. We begin to be exposed to other people's experiences in these different ways. And um, people who study this stuff say that fear of missing out is almost like this epidemic on the rise. 
as we see the experiences other people are having and feel like, if I'm missing out, I am less than them. And there's this idea that I need to be included. I need to be there. I don't want to be one who's on the outside looking in. And so this idea that I have to stuff my life with experiences or else there's something lacking in me. That's a real thing. Envy. I asked my wife, I was like, hey, where does envy show up in the world? And she's like, mom guilt. I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah. That comparison game, right, the way it, the way it plays out. Uh, in our lives where you, you look at, it's, it's sort of that, that idea of like, how do they do that moves quickly into like, ugh, and we hate them, right? That's envy. That's how it works. I mean, we laugh because it's, it's, I mean, it is. It's comical when we say it that way, but, it, but it's really toxic, right? This is the way we, this is what we do. We live in the world in a way that postures ourselves against one another because we take up a way of living toward God and one another in a way other than love. We put ourselves at the center and we only experience the good things of other people with respect to our own experience and that makes us incapable of love. So how does God rescue us from envy through Jesus and through his spirit? Well, I think one way that he does it is that he rescues us from the comparison game. God doesn't play the comparison game. These crazy games that you and I play, God does not play those games. His lavish love is for you and for your neighbor, poured out beyond measure, not because of what you do, not because of what they did, not because you deserve it, not because they deserve it. It's just lavishly, super abundantly poured out on you and on your neighbor. God delights in you both. You're not rivals. What God has done in Christ is in the fullness of time, he has sent his son into the world to break down all of those dividing walls that separate us from God and separate us from one another. He's made peace by the blood of his cross so that we would live toward God and toward one another in love and not rivalry. That is how God frees us in Christ. And that favor that God bestowed upon his son when the skies opened and the dove descended at Jesus' baptism and he heard those blessed words, this is my beloved son in whom I am pleased. Those same words God speaks over your own life, you who are joined to to Jesus. The favor that rests upon him is the favor that rests upon you and the favor that rests upon your neighbor. You're not rivals your fellow celebrators and rejoicers in this beautiful reality that you get to share together as one family of those who've been brought in, those who have been made alive by the Spirit. How does God rescue us from our envy? He gives us his own son, and with him he gives us all things. You think about looking on our lives from this perspective of what we lack, right? Envy is the sin of the have-nots. But to, but to be restored in Christ to a way of seeing our own lives and the world in the way that God calls us to see those things is to put on those kingdom of God glasses and to begin to see that God has in fact in Christ given us all things. You are an heir to the kingdom, a kingdom that is imperishable and undefiled and not made with human hands that's laid up in heaven for you that cannot be shaken that is yours forever and ever 
you lack nothing. And so God calls us to share that with one another, to celebrate that with one another, and he gives us one another as gifts. And he gives gifts to you, and he gives gifts to your neighbor so that we might use them to bless one another, not to separate ourselves or play the ladder-climbing game and get one leg up above one another. He calls us to use our gifts to serve, which requires us to imagine our life collectively more than individually, right? It, imagines, it calls us to reimagine our belonging in the world, not primarily as a fragmented individual over here to whom God has given this much, and then my neighbor over here as another individual to whom God has given this much more, but rather we are together, made one, and God has given us these things. What he's given me, he's given me to share and bless, share with my neighbor and to bless my neighbor. What he's given my neighbor, he's given to them to share and to bless me. And so we, we delight in those things together. We live together. And as we do that, James says that God makes us sowers of peace. This is a section of the letter where he's been um, previously, before the passage that we just read, he's been getting into the problems of our speech. What happens when we speak destructively? And he talks about the tongue as like this fire that like lets loose like a forest fire or a wildfire that just burns down life, Right? That's what happens when we speak destructively. That's the kind of speech that flows from an envious heart. But here he contrasts that with this other way of transformed life and speech where he's made us to be sowers of peace who are to live in the earth not by the instability of this earthly wisdom that leads us in the way of envy and selfish ambition but by the unwavering stability of God's wisdom from above that makes us peaceable and merciful and non-hypocritical, loving our neighbor rather than envying our neighbor. And that, James says, brings forth a harvest of righteousness. That's the calling, that's the freedom, that is what God liberates us into through Jesus and the Spirit. To live together with God and one another, not as rivals but as friends. So very quickly to close, what are some practical ways that we can actually live out this liberation and practice this week living as friends of God and one another rather than as rivals? Graham Tomlin offers three practical ways that I think are really helpful. Uh, one, he says, we need to change the price tags. He talks about God's, God's ways are not our ways, okay? Okay. So why do we keep measuring the value of things by the worldly metrics? By what James would call that wisdom from below. Rather than measuring the things in our lives, rather than seeing our lot in life through those kingdom glasses of life with God. We need to change the price tags to fit God's economy by way of his wisdom from above. The second thing he says is we need to um, admire without comparing Admire without comparing. It's a beautiful discipline. Practice delighting in other people without reference to yourself. It's not a competition. Just delight in them because they're delightful. And allow yourself to be delighted in because you are delightful. God delights in you. And that's enough. Thirdly, he says, connect with God. Knowing and communing with God is the secret to contentment. You are loved. And God wants you. You are precious. Your worth does not fluctuate based upon what you do 
or what you have or what experiences you cram into your life or what stories you can tell, what accomplishments you can put on your resume, what letters you have after your name. Your worth is not relative to anyone else's. You are God's beloved. You are God's child. So come sit in his lap. Come be with him. He wants you. Spend time with him this week and be reminded of his love. Experience his love. And lastly, I would just add a discipline that I myself have found very helpful recently is the discipline of practicing gratitude. Envy is the sin of the have-nots who live as have-nots regardless of how much we have. Practicing gratitude is the discipline of recognizing just how much God has blessed us with and that our feelings of being the have-nots in the world are often just vicious lies that we tell ourselves. Practicing gratitude. Revisit your day. Revisit your week. Revisit your life story. And look for God's faithful, generous, abundant provision and care for you and give thanks and watch as envy dissipates and love for God and neighbor comes alive. Let's pray. Our God, we give you thanks that you love us, that you hold us to yourself. We thank you that your abundant care for us is not a function of our deserving. It is not a function of how well we outcompete our neighbor. And we thank you that you and Christ have come to us and have put an end to all these bitter rivalries that we have created um, among ourselves. Would you make that real to us today? And by your spirit, would you make the peace of Christ truly to rule in our hearts? That we might live as settled and peaceful, knowing the unsurpassing worth that you have given us in your son and would we live in the security of your embrace, knowing that we, we can't lose that? And from that place of security, would you unleash us to love our neighbors as ourselves? We ask through Christ our Lord. Amen.